Thank you for listening to the Modesto Foursquare podcast. We hope that this message encourages and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. Please know that you can always join us every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, 510 Bernie Street in Modesto. You can also find more information on our website at ModestoFoursquare.com. It's a long weekend when you're home with kids, ages four and two, right? By yourself. While Tyler's just like ministering to people on the streets, what's that about? Why does he get to go do that? Anyway, good morning, everyone. Um, So today I want to ask all of us, um, have any of you ever been through like anything difficult in your lives? Um, Have any of you ever been sick? Have any of you ever watched a family member deteriorate? Have any of you lost a job or a house or a spouse? Has anyone miscarried? Has anyone ever been misinterpreted or misrepresented or misunderstood? Anybody going through something difficult right now? And that's not all. What about the less serious things? You know, what about feeling like you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop? Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever felt like a new job's just not coming quick enough? You feel miserable in the place that you're in? Have you ever felt like you just good news isn't coming? Um, Or that everything is just hard, like nothing can come easy. Have you ever felt like you just can't catch a break? I have. (laughs) I think we all have. We've all been in those moments where we feel like we can't catch a break. So this morning we're going to talk about adversity and how we respond to it. So my little pun, you'll notice as you get to know me more and more, um, I like puns, I guess. So my punny title for this morning is Adverse Reactions to Adversity. Um, So in our study, we're going to look at the ancient Israelites. The Cambridge Dictionary defines adversity as a difficult or unlucky situation or event, and Merriam-Webster defines it as a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. So I don't know about you, but when I think about the Israelites, my first thought isn't always adversity. Yes, I think about how they spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Yes, that was adversity, right? Yes, then they wandered the desert for 40 years. But when I think about them, I also think about powerful rescue, right, of these plagues and the way that God just moved and cut right through everything and and got them out. I think about God's presence with them in this pillar of cloud and fire. I think about God's provision in sending manna straight from heaven and quail for them to eat. I think about water coming out of rocks. Um, I think about God parting the Red Sea for them to walk across dry land and then their enemies being swept away 
in the sea as it closed. So adversity, yes, I think about that, but I also think about prosperity and promise, right? This morning, you can turn to the book of Numbers. Yeah, you heard me correctly, the book of Numbers. (laughs) My plan today is just to read a bunch of digits and also a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. That's all we're going to do today. No, there are actual stories in the book of Numbers. Um, And so we're going to be in chapter 14. But I want to read just the beginning of verse 11.1. And this is in the New American Standard Bible. I want to read that first. It says this. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. They became like those who complain of adversity. So my question for us today to kind of frame our conversation is, what do we do when circumstances are difficult and when something doesn't come as easily as we expect? What do we do? How is our reaction? So to give us a little bit of context today for Numbers 14, the Israelites, they've been away from Egypt for about a year. So they were rescued from these 400 years in slavery, um, and they've been out and about for about a year. And they're coming upon the land that God promised to them, the land he promised would be theirs. They're coming up to Canaan. And they've decided to send out scouts. So they want to know, like, Is this land as good as God says it is? So they send out 12 spies, one from each tribe, to kind of be representative of the whole of Israel. And they go out to look at the land. But it wasn't God's idea. God didn't, like, tell Moses and Aaron and tell the Israelites, hey, send out these spies so that you can see what a good place I'm sending you to. No, it was their own idea. And then Moses agrees with them, and so he, he gathers up the 12 spies, and they send them out into Israel, I mean into Canaan. And so the spies have returned, and they're here talking with the Israelites. And Caleb and Joshua, two of the, two of the spies, say, this land looks amazing. And then the other 10, they basically say, yeah, the land looks amazing. You're right. Look at these grapes, right? But there's no way, no way we can defeat these people. So what we have in Numbers 14 is the response of the people to the spies' reports. And um, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read for a long time, you guys. (laughs) So hang with me. Um, We're going to read the whole chapter. So we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to see how they respond, how they react to the spies' report that there's no way we can defeat these people. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. 
If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I'll make you into a, great, a nation greater and stronger than they. Verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who've heard this report about you will say, The Lord wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who's treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who's counted, who was counted in the census and who's grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for you children, as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you've rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last day of your bodies, the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. Verse 34, for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you'll suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. Ouch. You'll know what it's like to have the Lord against you. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. 
They'll meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. Verse 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this all to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we're ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you've turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Verse 44, almost done, guys. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived on that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them all the way to Hormah. Okay. That was a long chapter. But you know God's word can speak on its own, right? It can. I could come up here and I could just have read that and then I could send you all home. And I would pray and hope that the Lord spoke something to you already. Because God's word speaks to us. And so my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit has already begun to speak to you this morning. Maybe it's something that I'll draw out from the passage. Maybe it's something completely different. Lord, I thank you that you speak. I thank you that you talk to us through your word. You reveal who you are through your word. Lord, help us to be open to hearing what you have to say to each one of our hearts this morning. Amen. Okay, so here's a few notes on this chapter. We read about the Israelites hearing this bad report, right? <clears throat> and they are, excuse me, allergies. They are weeping and they're wailing. That's how they respond to hearing the report. And their fear is leading them to grumbling against Aaron and Moses. <coughs> now, if I heard this report... And I didn't read the report, but if I heard it, um, I would be afraid also, okay? These guys are big. Who wants to hear that the people you're supposed to defeat in battle are half giants, right? Like, they're huge. They're giants. And I think also sometimes my tendency in reading this passage is to think that God overreacted a little bit, okay? You read this. And, I mean, I read this and I think, wow, 40 years of wandering in the desert is the consequence for being afraid? Like, none of these folks who complained are going to get to see the promised land? That seems a little bit harsh. But here's what I want us to know. This isn't the first time the Israelites have grumbled. And it's not going to be the last. In fact, we read in verse 22, God says, the people tested him and disobeyed him ten times already. Ten times. And if you go and you look for those ten times, um, you'll notice that often it, it came right after a very amazing miracle. 
Like something amazing happens and then the next sentence is like, now the people got together and they started grumbling. I already read you that opening to chapter 11 of Numbers. Tell me if any of these verses sound familiar, okay? Exodus 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Exodus 16, starting in verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Exodus 17, verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why'd you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then this is in the future, so we we read in Numbers 14 today. Here's Numbers 20. They just don't stop, okay, guys? They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, those ten spies. If only we died with them. Why'd you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die? Why'd you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Numbers 21. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. The miserable food was the manna God is sending to them. I mean, I guess 40 years of the same thing, you'd get a little tired of it. I understand. But this is familiar, right? The Israelites over and over and over again. It's like their anthem. This is their song. Their song is, why are we in the wilderness? We're out here to die. Life was better in Egypt. And they speak these words directly after God has performed some kind of wonderful, awe-inspiring miracle But for them, the miracles were not enough. They were always craving something different or something more. Like, okay, we've got manna, but can you give us some quail? We've got manna and quail, but where where are the pomegranates? I think that it's really easy um, for us to look at the Israelites with like 2020 hindsight, right? We get to live with this Bible and read it and look at it, and we can see very clearly why God would have called these people stiff-necked or stubborn. Come on, people. Do you not remember the Red Sea? Do you not remember all those plagues? Do you not remember what Egypt was really like? But I come back to that question. How do each of us react when we can't catch a break? I wonder if we have our own personal grumblings, okay? And maybe even more importantly, do we ever have nostalgia or like homesickness for spaces and times that actually were enslaving to us? Do we ever long for Egypt? Somebody's phone is going to read us Numbers 14 again, everybody. (laughs) 
I'll ask that again. Do we ever have nostalgia or are we ever homesick for a place or a space or a time where we were actually enslaved? Do we have Egypt that we look back to with longing? Because to me that doesn't make sense. But I know I do it, right? I've told this story before, so many of you probably know it. Um, Many of you have heard the story of Tyler and I and our journey to having kids. Um, And if you haven't, then I'm going to tell you a little bit right now. And if you have, then you can just close your ears, don't listen again, (laughs) or listen again. Um, So we'd been married for about six years before we ever started trying to have kids, and um, within the first month, we were pregnant. It was, like, immediate. Um, but six weeks in, we found out that it was an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and so I ended up in the hospital getting emergency surgery because the baby was in my fallopian tube. Um, and so I had an emergency surgery, and I had a fallopian tube removed, and the baby's gone too, of course. They can't, like, move the baby from the fallopian tube into your uterus. Anatomy lesson, everybody. (laughs) Um, But then again, within six months, I was pregnant um, a second time. And everything seemed to be going well until the second trimester when I didn't didn't know, but my water broke at 13 weeks one day. Um, And even after that, we didn't find out for four weeks. And then after those four weeks, we prayed and we asked God for a miracle, but um, I carried Theodore until 20 weeks, or 21 weeks, um, and I delivered him stillborn 21 weeks into that pregnancy that summer. Um, And so it took us over two years and two losses for us to finally bring Simone home with us, Um, And we didn't go without any trouble um, in between the time we lost Theodore and having Simone either. We lost my mother-in-law during that time, unexpectedly. Um, And so I don't tell you all of this for your pity. I'm I'm never trying to tell you stories for your pity. Um, Or to just repeat my story over and over again. That's not the only thing that defines me and who I am. But I think that When we face times of adversity, when life is challenging, when not everything is coming easily for us, I think it can be really um, tempting, tempting to idealize another time, to look back at our lives and to um, wish for something that was in the past. And so I tell you this story actually To get you to think about this, I've been home with my kids alone for two nights. And you might think that with this troubling journey to get those kids home and to have them, every kid's a miracle, I think, after what we went through. Um, You might think that I'm going to be filled with gratitude for every single moment (laughs) of parenting. Right? Like, oh, it took you so long to get them. Aren't you grateful? Yes. Yes, I'm grateful. But... But I'm like every other mom on the planet Earth, every other parent on planet Earth who 
can look back sometimes with a little bit of longing, right? Do you remember sleeping in? (laughs) Do you remember making your own schedule or sleeping through the night? When we feel a little bit restricted, you may not have kids, you may have something else in your life that you feel a little bit restricted by and you look back with longing for a different time. But in doing that, we can forget all of the adversity that we faced before getting here. I think like the Israelites, I, I won't include you, but maybe it's you, maybe it's you too, Maybe me and the Israelites and you kind of sit there and think, back in Egypt, I, had, I was surrounded by pots of meat. And there was fresh bread. And there were figs. In Numbers 11, the Israelites talk about the free fish. Free. Free fish. Everybody, there was free fish in Egypt. Free at what cost? That's my question. Free at what cost? Their freedom. Sometimes I can look back and I think things were easier at a different time in life. And I forget about what those times cost me. Right? Pastor David Guzik writes, Israel fell in love with an illusion from the past, the thought that their life in Egypt was wonderful. Instead, they should have looked for what God had for them in the future. So from the example of the Israelites today, I can see a few adverse reactions that we can have to difficult times. Um, And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been guilty of all of these and still am guilty of all of them because I'm not a perfect person who has a perfect reaction to everything. Um, Number one, when we face adversity, we can react with murmuring or grumbling or complaining. Over and over again, we see the Israelites doing this. And I just want to clarify, this isn't to say that we can't bring our frustration or our questions to the Lord. But I would say, if you notice, the Israelites mostly do their grumbling to each other and to Moses and Aaron in all of our, all of our examples. They don't sit there and they don't rage against God or go to him directly. They're hiding. They don't even want to see his glory. They don't want to be near the mountain. They don't want to be near the tent of meeting. <clears throat> They're not going to God directly. In fact, they become murderous, like murderous. We're going to stone you, Joshua and Caleb. How dare you say that we should go in there and defeat these people and take Canaan? They're directing their frustration at the wrong people. God can handle our frustration. He'll correct us. I mean, we're still wrong probably in our frustration, Um, but he can handle it. But I wonder how often do I blame, how often do I blame my husband when there's something that's really an issue between me and Jesus and I should be going to Jesus? How often do we get frustrated and then take it out on somebody else instead of 
being with the Lord, dealing, letting the Lord deal with our hearts. The second one this morning is we can react with unbelief. I mentioned this before, but it wasn't God's idea for them to scout out the land of Canaan. God had already promised that this land was flowing with milk and honey and that they would inherit it and they would receive it. God already promised them victory. So when the battle looked difficult, they doubted. They doubted that he would fulfill his promise. Um, They lacked faith in the power of God, that God could do what he said he would do. And, And even after the consequences are spoken of them missing out on the promised land, they continue in unbelief, okay? So they're sorry, regretful maybe, but they're not actually repentant at the end of Numbers 14. They also don't believe that God will be good on his word when he said that they're going to die in the wilderness, right? He says, oh, we're sorry, God. You're right. We should have trusted you at first because they're upset about the consequences, not because they're really repentant in their hearts, Then they go out and try to make their own way and fight their own battle without God. Verse 44 says, in their presumption, they went out. How often do we presume to know better than God in our unbelief? Number three, this is in connection with that, we can react by questioning God's character and his faithfulness. When we perceive that God isn't coming through or that he's not doing something quickly enough or we don't see him clearing a path for us or making a way or at least it's not happening in our own timing, I wonder what our default vision of who God is is. What do we kind of go back to? What's our reaction when we don't think God's doing what he should be doing? I'll tell you what. Um, I've spent a lot of years trying to reorient myself and, and make sure that my gut reaction isn't this, but there are times when my gut reaction still is to go back to believing some things I know are not true about God. My gut reaction can still be sometimes when something doesn't go my way to believing maybe that God isn't really good or maybe he's not really powerful. Maybe, maybe he is good and powerful, but he's not for me, right? Like, he might be for other people, favor other people, but there's something, like, inherently wrong with me. He's not got me. Or maybe, maybe God's out to get me. Like, maybe he really is just toying with me. Maybe God did bring me out here into the wilderness to die. Has anybody ever been there? If we're honest, like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Did you bring me here to die? Might as well have killed me in Egypt. And I love that in Numbers 14 we read Moses appealing to God's power and God's promises, and God's character in his prayer for the Israelites. I also love that God offers Moses a clean slate. He says, Moses, I'll wipe these people out with a plague, and I'll make you a greater nation 
than they were. If I were leading 600,000 people who acted like the Israelites, (laughs) but Moses responds with love for the people. And I think this is like where God was leading him in the first place. God was leading him to this love for the people, the kind of love that God had for the people already. The kind of love God had for them and the kind of love God has for us. And Moses says, no, forgive them. And then the fourth, the fourth reaction we can have, I think, is seeing ourselves wrongly. Right? Like that question of maybe God's, maybe God's good, maybe God's powerful, maybe he's just not for, for me. Maybe he's against me. I didn't read this verse before, but in Numbers 13, 33, just before this, when the ten spies bring the bad report, they say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They saw themselves as grasshoppers. The people of Canaan were giants, and the Israelites were grasshoppers. I have to admit that a lot of things have come easy for me in my life. Something has just kind of come easily for me. But you know what I do when something doesn't come easily for me, when I have to work hard? (laughs) At least if it's just like a little hobby or something like kind of silly, I quit. I quit. Or I might spend the whole time, I was a ballet dancer, (laughs) and because I didn't feel as good as the other girls in my class, I probably spent most of my ballet career from like 12 to 20 feeling inferior, okay? I was a grasshopper. The other girls were good. That wasn't really true. I was a decent ballet dancer, okay? I wasn't tall. I was never going to be tall like some of the dancers. But I felt, I felt inferior. I was a grasshopper in my own eyes when things required hard work. I would quit or feel lesser. And so I think the problem with this is that we can end up saying, Lord, I'm not enough, which is true, right? But then we take that, I'm not enough, so therefore, Lord, you aren't enough either. This isn't a message that's primarily about God's punishment or about consequences, but I do want to take a quick look at the Israelites. So in their grumbling, not only here in Numbers 14, but like we said, their repeated complaining and unbelief, God finally gives them exactly what they ask for. It's kind of a scary thing to think that I could possibly complain so much or grumble so much, or be so afraid, or so unbelieving that the Lord finally just says, okay, I'm not going to hold you back from getting what you want anymore. Can't that be the biggest consequence of, of our sin sometimes, or our wrong mindsets, is that the Lord just says, I've been pulling you back, pulling you back, holding you back for so long, and I'm just going to give you a little rope now. Go ahead. Reap the consequences of your cravings or your desires. And so God 
gives them what they asked for. He doesn't have them return to Egypt or to slavery, but he does allow them to die in the wilderness that they've been talking about over and over and over again. And the very children that they were worried would be taken as plunder, those are the the kids who are going to get to see the promised land. God doesn't take them back to slavery, but I think that God does allow them in this moment, he kind of abandons He doesn't abandon them. He's always with them, right? But he lets them, okay, you want to be a slave in your mind? Go ahead and stay a slave in your mind. Because the Israelites, all through the beginning of Numbers, chapters 1 through through 11, 1 through 13, God is talking about all of these things that are going to prepare these people to go from being slave mindset to promised land people. All of the things that are going to prepare them to like, be his promised people. And they just can't do it. They can't get over the hump. They can't envision themselves as people of promise. They can't take on this new identity that God is giving them of conquering and victory because they're still slaves in their hearts. So with Moses' appeal to God, God forgives them. He forgives. But the promise is delayed. The promise is delayed. God forgives but he's not with them when they try to forge their own path into the promised land. And they do it in their own time because they didn't believe God's original timing. But God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word in the consequences too. So I don't know about you. Um, I would guess you're with me on this. I don't want any delays to God fulfilling promises in my life especially not due to my own stubbornness or my own murmurings. I don't want to walk around with Egypt in my heart when the promised land is right in front of me. I don't want what should be an 11-day walk, 11 days, to take 40 years. I don't want to be known as somebody who treats God with contempt or with disdain, or a lack of respect, or who is willfully disobedient to God. Um, Yeah, and I'm trying to think about, like, each of us have our own personal Egypts, our own personal things that we kind of just go back to and default to. And I think for me, one of those things is believing the wrong things about God. Like anytime something is a little bit difficult or doesn't come easy, I start questioning God's character. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live that way. In verse 24, we read, But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. I want to be Caleb. Because I don't want to keep going to my gut reactions in adversity. Um, 
Is everything that's worth it easy? No. I don't think everything that's worthy or everything that God calls us to do or be is easy. But he's with us. Would it be easy for them to go in and and take this land? I don't know that it would still be easy. Like, it's still a battle, right? But God was with them and promised them victory. So, if we want to move away from, like, our gut reactions, what can we do? How can we respond? Responding is a little bit slower and better, I think, than reacting, right? It's a little more thoughtful. How can we be like Caleb instead of the other 600,000 Israelites? I have just a few thoughts for us this morning. Number one, and these are directly linked to the adverse reactions. Number one, we can ask God to show us who we are in him. So instead of becoming grasshoppers in our own eyes or making God out to be a grasshopper, we can be reminded of our identity in Christ. We can be reminded that we are dearly loved, that we're rescued, and that Christ dwells inside of us. He made his home inside of us. That must count for something. Number two, this is a prayer that I pray a lot, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. We can rehearse and remind ourselves. How many times in the Old Testament do we read the word remember? We can remember God's answers to prayer. We can remind ourselves of God's faithfulness, and we can look at all of the fulfilled promises And we can allow God to fight our battles. We can reach for deeper trust in him. I'm not saying any of this is easy or that it's like an automatic response. But as we practice it more and more, I think it becomes natural. Christianity and worship, all of that is a practice, right? We don't get it perfectly and we have to keep doing it. It's practice. Help our unbelief when we don't see you moving, God. Or when we see you wrongly, help us to see you rightly. We can ask him to reveal who he is and remind us of his goodness and his favor and his love. And then number three, gratitude. So instead of complaining, we can praise Um, instead of looking in the here and now and thinking how what I have right here right now is not enough, we can remember what God's already done. We can remember that isn't it miracle enough that Jesus has redeemed us? And then on top of that, aren't there thousands of blessings he gives us each and every day? This doesn't mean that we ignore what's difficult. But I think we can bring the difficult to the feet of Jesus. Because when I don't bring it to the feet of Jesus, I end up wallowing in it. 
or isolating myself um, or directing my pain and frustration at the wrong source. Let's bring our adversity to Jesus. Let's put it at his feet. And then with gratitude and worship, I think that those feelings of helplessness and fear, like the Israelites felt, eventually they become praise. They become reminders of the promises God still has. They, gratitude and praise can break us out of this desire to kind of go back to Egypt or go back to what held us and move forward into the future and remind us of God's love. And so this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I just want us to take a moment um, to do three things. Um, Number one, confess. So I feel like every time my response is confess. Everybody Let's confess. Let's repent. But that's what we have to keep doing. It's ongoing. So let's confess. Let's uh, um, take some time to point, ask the Lord, point out my grumbling, point out my unbelief, point out my false ideas about who you are, point out where I'm being really presumptuous and trying to do things my own way. Number two, let's ask. Ask for God to reveal himself in power and in promise and in character. Because he has promises for us and he has the power to fulfill them. And he's always good and always beautiful and always true. Always faithful. So let's ask God to reveal himself to us. And then number three, let's praise Let's come to the Lord with gratitude for his redemption and for his love and for his sufficiency because God is enough, right? The Lord is enough. Even without all of the miracles, God was enough. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to take some time to do that. If you would like some prayer or you'd like to come up front, just as a, there's not, not anything like, special about this space, but there's something special about us like taking an actual physical step of movement, right, to, to confess or to ask or to praise. So if you'd like to use this space up here or you would like prayer, um, some of our elders or I can pray for you this morning, um, and then we're just going to worship. We're going to thank Jesus for what he's done. Lord, I thank you that... Um, <laughs> Even in the Israelites grumbling ten times and beyond, you still you still forgave them. Lord, we don't want the promise to be delayed because of a wrong attitude. And so this morning we confess our unbelief. We, we confess the areas where we've wanted to go back to slavery and we haven't had a right idea of who you've made us to be in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us today, that we would believe in your promises, help our unbelief. And Lord, we come to you with gratitude for all that you've done and 
the thousands of blessings that we have around us every single day. We thank you and we praise you this morning for who you are. In Jesus' name.